Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul McKenzie. It's a joy to get to come and to get to uh, consider God's Word together. Um, last night, even, when we were sitting down at the dinner table, my wife uh, prayed and prayed for uh, today's sermon, that uh, God would bless it and it would go well. Um, so as a small note, uh, to start, uh, if you've ever gleaned anything from my sermon or appreciated anything from it, uh, it's probably not my credit, but more credit is due to my faithful wife who prays. Uh, and so uh, consider that. But then... That prayer then sparked a conversation that my three-year-old and I had during bath time um, where she asked me, well, Daddy, what is a sermon? And I thought, that's kind of strange. I would have thought you knew this. This is a word we use uh, in our household kind of more than the average person, I guess. Uh, But quickly, I was trying to prepare something because I didn't have a default definition for a three-year-old on what a sermon was. So I kind of just said, well, maybe it's when when Daddy gets in up on stage or somebody else, and uh, they get to tell the whole church who Jesus is. That was a good good enough answer, and she seemed to take it. Um, But then those gears are turning. She had that mischievous look on her eye, and she looked back at me, and she said, Daddy, maybe you should tell them who I am. Mm. (laughs) That would be a good sermon. And uh, she proceeded to tell me that she thinks I'm very funny, in which I always correct my children and tell them, no, I'm actually hilarious. Um, I think channeling that, she was trying to come up with a good joke for me to share, and so she said, you should tell them about how I'm your mustard daughter. Now, you might be rightly thinking, what on earth is a mustard daughter? Uh, And rightfully so, Um, because earlier in that day, we were out at a park playing, we were playing follow the leader, and Milo was leading, and I was following, and apparently I wasn't up to snuff, um, because she felt like she needed to turn around and correct me, and she said, catch up, daddy. And so I said, okay, mustard daughter, and like all good dad jokes, only, ha- only a quarter of the people get it and the rest need an explanation. And she needed an explanation. She was like, mustard daughter. And I was like, yeah, you called me a ketchup daddy. I'm going to call you a mustard daughter. <laughs> well, she thought that that was pretty funny. And, uh, and so she made me promise to bring it up somehow in the sermon. <laughs> So I was thinking, how on earth am I going to relate this together? Well, there's one part of a dad joke, which is uh, that, you, that you need to define it so that people actually get it. The second part of a good dad joke is that you take it too far. So that's what we're going to embark on now with a little bit of an illustration. Uh, in our text this morning, I outlined the sermon uh, really with three words in my own head, uh, and I called it, um, we're going to see what is finished, what is fulfilled, and who follows. And so under this idea of following, I was thinking about, again, this follow the leader, and maybe this was a good place to put it up, because we're going to see, we're going to pick up on what we considered last week, where John presents the work of Jesus as finished, his own words on the cross, it is finished. Then we get these two other narratives thrown in there, the second of which uh, is thrown in there to to communicate to us um, all about the scripture that is being fulfilled. And in fact, in today, we're going to be doing a lot of reading of just Scripture and jumping back to references, uh, because that's one of John's main purposes, is he wants to testify to who Jesus is and that his work is finished. And then we're going to get these followers at the very end, uh, this this Nicodemus uh, and this Joseph of Arimathea, both of whom apparently have a secret faith that needs to become a public faith. One could say maybe that they were catch-up disciples, and now they're mustard disciples. So... There you go. There's fulfilling the second part of a bad dad joke and taking it way too far. 
But what I'm going to do uh, is less of me saying bad dad, bad dad jokes and more about reading God's Word. Uh, so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it up to John chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be starting our, our, our whole reading through this whole section in verse 31. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Um, and again, just to kind of write our bodies in a physical response to be ready to uh, hear God's Word, I'm going to ask you in reverency of God's Word, why don't you stand uh, and we'll read this. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on to him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And on the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Hear the very words of God. Y'all may be seated. So really to kind of gain our, our, our context, our bridge of where we are to understand kind of this progression of these three words, it is finished, uh, the scripture is fulfilled, and now these followers rightly respond to Jesus' death. Uh, to rightly do that, I want to kind of jump back into verse 30 uh, and start our conversation there, a verse that we considered at the end of uh, last week's sermon when Chris was preaching over it, uh, in which he did an excellent job highlighting several key things, and I want to repeat those same things uh, and highlight them as well, uh, so that this morning we really again move into this passage understanding that John uh, wants to make abundantly clear that moving from one section into the next is a completion of Jesus' work and salvation, yet that work is not still done. That there is a completion of what is, that he has completed all of salvation, but there's much more work that he will still do in the affirming of his ability to be Messiah. So jumping back to verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This word, uh, really three words in English, only one word in Greek, it is finished, uh, really does carry a connotation of something being completed, uh, a task that is done with nothing else needed to be added to it. This is actually the same word that Luke uses in his gospel when he's talking about Jesus being presented at the temple as a young boy. In Luke 2.39, it says, And when they had performed everything, this they have performed, this is the same word, it is finished. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. So this carries with it, this it is finished, carries with it this connotation of completion. Everything has been done. There's nothing more to be added. 
This has been a huge theme that we've actually seen all the way through the book of John building up to this moment, right? From even the very beginning, we were seeing Jesus using phrases like, uh, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet arrived. He was saying and foreshadowing that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he knew there would be an hour of his glorification and his death, even from the very beginning. And through the first part of the book, we saw that it had not yet arrived. Then we got a really big switch in chapter 12, and we saw it again uh, in a couple other places, and in 17 most recently, uh, that said that Jesus now is not using this, my hour is still yet to come. Now he's actually saying, my hour has come. So we've been building up where his hour is yet to become, now the hour is come, and then what John is highlighting here through Jesus' words is he's saying, my hour is finished. Jesus' earthly ministry, his work has been dri- that he has been driving himself and dragging everybody else along all the way to the cross. Now that work is finished. It's completed. But there's another connotation that this word takes on as well. Because, yes, one of its usage is uh, to say that things are completed. And kind of on a similar vein under that, the other thing that this word is oftentimes used comes from a more accounting standpoint. And it is that it is paid for. Yeah, it's kind of, it makes sense. It is completed. It is finished. It has been paid for. Everything that needed to be paid now is no longer owed, but is paid for. This is, again, the same word is used in Matthew 17, 24, um, when the religious leaders um, are, are asking, asking Peter why Jesus doesn't pay the temple tax. And in 17, 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? This is that same word, pay. It is, has it been paid for? And so what we should be really getting is that it's not just that it is completed, but that it is also paid for. There's a a guy who wrote a commentary in the book of John named Edwin Blum, and I put one of his um, things that I found at least interesting during uh, research is that uh, even secular uh, archaeologists have found uh, old scripts of paper that were receipts. And when the, you could tell that it was written in one hand, and then when it was fulfilled in another hand, wide and across the whole, uh, the whole paper, they would write this Greek word. It has been paid in full. There's nothing lacking. And this is what we get John leading up into our conversation is that Jesus, in his words of saying that it is finished, he is acknowledging that there is nothing more to be done and everything has been paid in full. And I think this is why then he chooses to give over his life. John Stott, in the, uh, his book, The Cross of Christ, which I'll mention again, has this great quote, so I put it also up on the screen. It said, uh, what dominated Christ's mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. His whole earthly ministry has been building up to that, this giving of his life. And that's what he does in the second part of verse 30. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I remember Chris did a great job of presenting this well as we've been building up to now. Uh, Jesus is the only one with the authority to be able to give his life. Back in John 10, 18, it says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I think this also is highlighted, this truth is highlighted in the specific wording that's being used here. Uh, This word in Greek for him bowing, him bowing his head. 
It's actually the same word that is used often other times in secular uh, writing of the same time to communicate laying your head down on a pillow. Even in scripture, uh, Jesus uses this, wor- this word uh, previously when the Pharisees and some other disciples uh, are coming and gathering around him and some are asking questions about what it is to follow him. And he replies with very statements describing the cost, the hard cost of following uh, a Messiah. He says in Matthew eight twenty, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the same word. It's not a bowing down of defeat. Christ realizes that his hour has come. The work is finished. It is complete. It is paid in full. And in essence, he can say, now I can lay down. I can rest. What he was saying in Matthew essentially was to these guys who were questioning, what is the cost here? Uh, He's saying that this place, this earth is not the place that is suitable for me to lay down my head. Not on this place. The only place that is suitable for me to lay down my head is at the ushering of the world to come, my kingdom to come, the next thing at my death. And so, again, Jesus' ministry has been building all up to this point. John is emphasizing this emphatically clear. And then here, here is where it is communicated that his work is finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. And now he lays down his head, bows his head, and gives his life over to the Father's hands. So if verses 28 through 30 highlight this finishing of Jesus, um, now John will move into the section we read this morning, which is kind of interesting. It's only 11 verses. And this is the only 11 verses in John's entire gospel that he's going to communicate during Jesus' death. <laughs> Spoiler alert, next week we'll get to the rising part. We already sang about that. But this week we're calling just John's small section, 11 verses out of, let me see, I looked it up, out of Uh, 879 verses in the book, John only spends 11 on Jesus' death. But in these 11 verses, he makes a very, very profound connection to tie into the finished work of Christ and, again, the right response that we should have when we look up upon the cross. He splits it into two parts. The first part, which is verses 31 through 37, it actually captures these some miraculous events that are going on Um, that immediately follow the death of Jesus. He wants to capture these uh, events and he wants to show the fulfillment of scripture through them. This is, again, this is John testifying to uh, Jesus' finished work as a Messiah and then how even after his death, Jesus and God is continuing to orchestrate to affirm his authority as Messiah. And this is through the fulfilling of scripture. He wants no one to miss this. And then when you rightfully consider what he did and rightfully consider what he fulfilled in Scripture, then the second part kicks in, verses 38 uh, through 42, which captures the event uh, of a couple followers that show a right response to Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. This is, again, where we get this idea of fulfillment and then followed. So let's jump into this section on the fulfillment of Scripture. What we see in this uh, verse is... um, I messed this up first service. Let me say it right. What is it? Same, same song, second verse, or same play, second act? I convoluted those in my head, and I was like, same act, second verse, song, what, something. I don't know. Um, but what we see again is we see 
what we've seen already leading up in, Jew, in the death of Jesus, we see these Jews identified, not Jews as a whole, but, really, but specifically the Jewish leaders, these high Jewish leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. Um, and what they're doing is they're trying to, even though uh, they are powerless to do so, we ultimately find in the narrative leading up, they are trying to get Jesus condemned to death. But ultimately it is Jesus who has to uh, bring himself, because again, it is only his life that he uh, can give. No one can take it. And so they're, they're trying to now at this point, upon uh, Jesus on the cross, they're seeking to discredit Jesus as a Messiah. They themselves can't do this, so they go back to their mode of operatus so far, which is to involve the Romans and to try to get the Romans to do the work. And so we see God yet again use the fruit, uh, futile attempts of the Jews and the Romans uh, to discredit the Messiah to bring about these Um, miraculous events to testify, to fulfill scripture and the prophecy to point to Jesus as the Messiah. We'll go back and start again in 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So where are we now starting this? Well, we're on the day of preparation. This is the day before the Sabbath. If any of us were all good Jews, we'd know that on the Sabbath, you don't do any work. And so on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, you do all the work that you need to do for that day and the next day. So on preparation, you're doing that day's work and the next day's work so you don't violate the Sabbath. So if you had to cook something for the Sabbath, you cook it before. If you had to um, travel somewhere, to be somewhere on the Sabbath, you did it before, on the day before. If you had to move something in your house or orchestrate something, you did it before. Everything was done before. And apparently, to these Jewish leaders, on the preparation for the Sabbath, one of the things that they wanted to move, the work they needed done, uh, was the the final death of Jesus and the removal of his body. And so these Jewish leaders want Jesus' bodies to be moved, uh, and so they go, and then they try to enlist the help of the Romans once again. Um, This pragmatically is probably happening um, because they know two things. They know, one, they can't go and end Jesus' life by breaking his legs. Uh, The second thing that they know is also they probably can't get rid of his body after he's died. Both these things uh, would invalidate their uh, clean status, and thus they wouldn't be able to enter the temple and wouldn't be able to continue in worship in Passover. So knowing these two things, they go to the Romans, and they try to get the Romans to do this religious deed in their minds, this small detail that needed to be taken care of so that we all could go and have right standing, uh, enjoying our righteousness by our acts before God during Passover. They're likely drawing from the teaching of Deuteronomy 21, uh, which is in 22 through 23. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I think this is the motivation of these Pharisees. They don't want Jesus to continue on the cross. They don't want his corpse on display because they don't want to defile their land. Uh, They are motivated, not with compassion towards Jesus, not in consideration of what he has done, but all about their preservation of their right actions, their right deeds, the religious tone and nature of their decisions. 
So we'll, and we'll come back to the motivation of these Jews a little bit later. Uh, but now the text continues. And what we have is we have two events occurring, both divinely orchestrated to show the fulfillment of Scripture. The first one has to do with his bones and is found back in 32. It says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, this is on a pragmatic note. Chris set us up so well with this picture of crucifixion last week. Uh, again, where what the actual form of the final death of a person on a cross uh, comes from asphyxiation. It comes from not being able to breathe, essentially drowning in your own uh, uh, fluids that are building up in your bodies. Because while you're hanging there and all that fluid is being built up inside your lungs, the only way to get a breath is by pulling on your hands and pushing up with your feet to be able to gasp a breath and then sink back down. And this process would oftentimes go for days, as Chris pointed out, that they would be struggling for days and days and days. And then even after they died, the Romans would leave them up on the cross. They would not pull them down and give their body to their families. They would leave them up on their cross to continue to be a display of what it is if you defy the Romans. They would let birds of the air and wild animals come and pull off the flesh. And then when there was nothing left and the body is totally defiled, only then they would pull it down. Uh, and they wouldn't, again, go to some nice, pristine, uh, clean, new grave that we see used um, here for Jesus. Instead, they would go to a mass grave site for criminals and probably open up a used grave, maybe even shift or scrape around what's in there and then just shove uh, the new body in through that grave. And so what is being requested here is that the Jews are wanting to expedite the process of Jesus' dying, these three criminals who are, or that are condemned on this cross. Uh, and he wants, he's ple uh, ple they're pleading to Pilate to break their legs. And when the soldiers go, they break the other two. But then when seeing Jesus is already dead, they don't break his bones. And this is important. And we'll get to it right after John mentions the second event that happens. Because when the, after realizing that he's, uh, he, he is, doesn't need his legs broken, that he already is dead, for some reason a soldier um, then decides to walk up and pierce Jesus in 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once, there came, uh, at once there came out blood and water. Now, I'll, I'll make mention, because Chris and I were talking about this, and, and it was when leading up to the sermon, because it is um, kind of interesting, and there's a lot of views on a lot of what people think about what it is, why blood and water are both mentioned of specifically coming out of Jesus' body. Um, I think that there obviously has been a lot of symbolism to it. Some I can give more credit to others. Uh, some just want to highlight true and important facts and read them into here. Others are at least drawing on some things that images that John does specifically mention later uh, about Jesus. And so whether they're true or not, uh, I'm not convinced. But for the sake of even just kind of covering what a lot of people think of this, um, some people consider uh, the blood and water coming out of Jesus as an allusion to baptism. What they're saying is they're saying that uh, it symbolizes the fact that we need uh, to be washed in the blood of Jesus for salvation and be baptized in the water to demonstrate its effect. Again, this I mean, true about baptism, but I don't know if it's all that much 
what John's trying to communicate here. The other one is an allusion towards communion, similarly to, the, to emphasize uh, communion, um, because a lot of times when you would have in the Passover, um, the meal that the Lord institutes, the initial communion, uh, wine would be taken and it would be mixed with water and then passed around so that there was enough for everybody to uh, partake during the time. And so they're saying, in the same way that for uh, the Lord instituting communion with a cup of blood and water now flowing from his side is blood and water. Um, again, I don't necessarily buy into that. Even when Jesus can, you know, does the miracle uh, at the wedding, he doesn't serve the cheap stuff. I don't think he has a problem making it go around by adding water. Um, but then these, two, these last two, at least, I think are at least worth mentioning because they are symbolisms that do come up later in this same uh, chapter. The first is an allusion to the garden. Um, people try to read into because John's making an allusion to Jesus' death, going all the way back uh, to the garden, essentially saying that uh, Jesus as the second Adam uh, is fulfilling uh, the, the work that was not, not accomplished by the first Adam. Um, and so they're saying that in the same way that God uh, has to open up Adam's uh, side to give life, pull the rib, give life to Eve, in the same way Jesus' side is opened up to give life to us. And then the other one is an allusion to the Passover lamb. Um, this, this comes from, many people cite the Mishnah, which is a recording of Jewish high teaching um, that points to the strong flow of fluid from the animal during sacrifice to prove that it was recently killed. Essentially, if you had killed an animal and then brought it up to the altar, and then the priest began to do its, uh, the various parts, performances of the sacrifice, if the blood did not have a strong flow coming out of it when the priest was at that point, then it's showing that it was not an acceptable sacrifice. That it's not been killed recently, it's been killed previously and thus shouldn't be on the altar. And so they're trying to say that Jesus truly is the Passover lamb, a worthy sacrifice because this flows out from his side. Again, all while these may be true, I think there's better things in scripture to point to if this is the symbolism trying to be teached, uh, taught. What I do think, though, is that uh, I tend to gravitate more from a physiological explanation. I just think this is John making abundantly clear to us that Jesus is dead. Most uh, medical scholars will point to the fact that either this, the spear pierced Jesus' heart releasing the blood and its pericardial sac releasing fluid from it. I just take these guys' word for it. I can barely say pericardial sac. I don't know what's going on. One of the other ones that's oftentimes mentioned is that a lot of times these medical doctors have seen that recent trauma right before death um, uh, to the torso area specifically causes the body to build up fluids between the lining of the skin and the lungs. And so a lot of them point to the fact that this is simply pointing to that Jesus really did experience trauma flogged to his torso. And now here in his death, he really is dead because that fluid is built up, that blood is built up, and both of those things are releasing out of his lungs. Again, whatever it is and whatever John uh, is, is trying to communicate here, what he, what he certainly clearly is saying is that Jesus is dead and that in his death, bones weren't broken and his side was pierced. He wants to go through all this trouble of highlighting these things because he gets back to his main purpose, Main purpose of the book of John is to point to the signs of Jesus so that you see his, him respectively for who he is, believe in him, and thus have life. And so John is urging his readers to follow in belief. Verse 35, he says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. It continues, for these things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
This is a, a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy that comes uh, from Psalm 34:20. It says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And this is again, God and Jesus, uh, who has the authority to give only his life, gives his life over by announcing it's finished and then laying down his head before the guards could come through and break his legs so that this prophecy could be fulfilled. This may be why the Jewish leaders request specifically break his bones. They want a testimony that shows he was not the Messiah, but God is orchestrating a divine work through the Romans to prove the contrary. But I do think this is also an allusion to the Passover lamb. In John 1, John the baptizer declares Jesus as behold the lamb of God who can take away the sins of man. All the way back in Exodus twelve forty six, we have the instructions on how to prepare the Passover lamb. And it says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. This was one of the things to, again, to, to signify a pure Passover lamb, a pure symbolic sacrifice was that its bones weren't broken. This is why both Peter and Paul in Corinthians and um, first Peter, uh, described Jesus as this, this Passover lamb. But that's not the only reference that John gives for us to get another affirmation on Jesus's authority. In 37, he says again, and again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. This messianic prophecy comes all the way back from Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps, weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I think this is what John's trying to make clear. Jesus is dead. And God is still at work. Jesus is still at work using what the hopeless and ultimately non-productive or non-capable Jewish leaders and their scapegoats, the Romans, to say, you still can't accomplish a testimony after his death that is contrary to the truth that he gave his life as the Messiah, as the Passover lamb. And so with this understanding of this right fulfillment of Scripture, then John moves into our last section where he talks about uh, the, um, these two followers, these, this other group of this high, uh, high council of these Jews, these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus. In verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. He wasn't alone because Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We know from other passages of scripture, these two men aren't the only uh, affluent, rich members of the council who are considering a discipleship uh, in following Jesus. We had in John 12, uh, 42, where it says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory of God. This was the indictment that we see still hanging on the head of Nicodemus and of Joseph of Arimathea. 
It's kind of ironic because uh, I actually also was the one who got to teach through the first time we met Nicodemus way back in John chapter 3. And since that was like practically 10 years ago in all of our minds, uh, I'll remind you that I actually think that um, when when Nicodemus goes before Jesus at night, uh, because he doesn't want to be discovered, he goes to Jesus and when he acknowledges Jesus as a teacher from God, he uses the plural, we think you are a teacher from God. I think that that we represents both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, whether Joseph was standing next to him or Nicodemus is going on uh, as a representative of Joseph. But again, that's uh, not abundantly clear. What is abundantly clear is this mention of them. We have Joseph of Arimathea, who is highlighted as a secret follower of Jesus, and we have Nicodemus, who again, as us reminded, only comes to Jesus by night with his questions. Either way, what happens here is that these men um, who have previously now only followed Jesus privately now look upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the words that he said, these scriptures that are fulfilled, and they rightly take their fear-stifled faith and make it a public faith. His courage that God gives them, it's, it says specifically in some of the other gospel writers uh, that, that Joseph only goes to Pilate because of courage that is found, no longer fear. And so Joe and Nicodemus make a plan. Joe will ask for the body. Nick will purchase everything to prepare the body and then some. I think it's abundant, 75 pounds. He's making clear that there is no price not worthy to be paid to honor him. And so it says in verse 40, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So this is what I want to consider in our last couple moments together. Two points um, that come as our closing application The question I would ask is, which one of these two groups of Jews in this text can you relate with? Because after Jesus' death, after he finishes, we get these two groups and their events that go on. We have the first group, uh, which is these, again, religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, uh, the council, the ruling council. uh, And their response to Jesus uh, is... Again, their motivation is impure. Their motivation is all about, uh, again, their right action so that they may stand proven righteous before God. They're taking care of this minor detail of religion and missing completely the relationship of the Messiah that is before them. What they're doing is they're trying to get Jesus down from that cross uh, and so that his body isn't a defilement of their land. This is, this is the error that, again, comes time and time again. The fallacy of the Pharisees is that their whole religious construct was not only taking the tons of commandments God had already given them, but to make more even on top of that so that they could prove themselves worthy and rightly stand before God. Their whole theology is based on their works earning them a right status. And this is a mistake. This is what this passage shows us. This isn't the right way of thinking. Christ didn't die so that we can prove ourselves to God with our good deeds. From observing these Jews, I would ask an application. Is there, if there's anyone who's sitting here who's thinking that same thought, that the only reason that you know that you're a Christian who's going to heaven and going to be with Jesus forever is because you're here on Sundays. 
or maybe you're giving to the poor, or maybe that you, you teach a Sunday school class, or that you're kind to your neighbors. If you think that your right status only comes from the works that you are accomplishing now, then I'll tell you, friend, these are lies. They're misnomers. Instead, I would say, look rightly at your own sin. Look at the defilement that is in you. See that there is nothing you can do to remove that. And then I would say, after you look at your sin, I would say, look to the cross. Jesus knows that there's nothing that we can do with that sin. And so he says, I will pay it all. It is finished. And this is the salvation that John is trying to point us to. This is the opportunity for belief this morning. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to take away your sins, then don't delay. Today could be the day of salvation. Just simply ask him, saying, Father, take away my sins. And it will be granted because he is faithful and just. John Stott, again, I'll cite him because he has this great uh, wording. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. These Pharisees were all concerned about the display of the dead, and they weren't taking in consideration their own despicable deeds, the sin of all humanity in which we couldn't solve, but only Christ with the authority to do so can solve for us. So that's our first point. Or maybe you're looking at, and you better relate with the second group of Jews presented here, this Joseph and Nicodemus. Um, maybe you're looking at them and, and seeing even in your own lives where uh, we all struggle with it at some point, uh, where we don't live our faith publicly, but only enjoy Christ privately for our own salvation. For those of us who may think like, yeah, this, this place is the safe place. Here's where I'll make my public proclamation, but not at work, not, not my nine to five, not when I'm back with my family and when I'm outside these doors. You just tuck Jesus into our pockets and keep him safe for later. I think we all have examples of where this plays into our lives. And that can be discouraging because when we come and confront that sin, we know that it isn't correct to do that and to live that life. That's not the abundant life he promised. But I would say, if you are feeling that same discouragement that I felt in considering this passage, I would say, take comfort. Look at these two men. Look at Nicodemus. Look at Joseph. Those who were secret in their faith are the very men that God chose to bless with the honor of preparing his son's body for death. God does not dismiss them because of their fearful faith. God is patient with them, even in their fearful faith, to respond rightly to the work that he has done for their salvation and given them the blessing to prepare the body of his son. So if you're struggling with that fearful faith, take comfort in Nick and Joe and know that God's not even given up on you. Delve that out with the Holy Spirit and it'll be his accomplishment to rid that in your life, not your work that does it. But whatever it is and however it is that you need to respond, uh, whether it's the first group of the Jews and it is putting your faith in sal for salvation for the first time. And if you don't know how to have that conversation, this is the time that you can come forward uh, and we'd love to have that conversation with you. Or maybe as you're singing and standing there, you may need to kneel or you need to come pray uh, and you need to delve out, uh, Holy Spirit, what is it that I'm still living, a fearful faith? Um, give, grant me the courage you gave Joseph and Nicodemus to make their faith known. Or maybe that uh, you have gone through the welcome home process and met with Lance or the welcome home team and, and is that you want to live out this 
following of Christ with a dysfunctional family uh, and a church here at South Spring, and you want to make that known, this is the time. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, I pray that you do so faithfully as the Lord leads you.